0: Welcome along to church! Welcome along to church by the bridge. I'd like to extend my welcome to you. My name's Des, I'm one of the student ministers here, Uh, and I'd like to particularly welcome you here if you've been coming along to the uh, I Heart Kirribilli Art Exhibition. Uh, Maybe you've come along and you've thought, oh, I wouldn't mind checking this church caper out, Uh, and you've come along tonight. Well, we really want to make you feel welcome. We hope you've already felt welcome, and we hope that uh, as we come now for the next 20 minutes to look a bit of the Bible you might come away with something that you didn't know before. You might actually come to see who Jesus is about, uh, what He's about rather, and what this church is about, which maybe you've been involved with over the past couple of days a little bit clearer. We're starting a new series this week, a four-part series on Matthew 1-4 to called The Return of the King. But before I start this sermon, this first sermon in this series of four, let me just start with an actual quiz. And it's not a rhetorical quiz, it's an actual quiz, so I need actual answers. And it's got to do with famous opening lines. You don't need to stick your hand up, it's not school, but just sing them out. Tell me which novels these famous opening lines come from. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Sorry, say say that again. Bing! Tale of Two Cities, very good. Now, I won't even finish this one before some woman or girl calls this out. It is a truth universally acknowledged. See, I told you. Let me just finish it off for the rest of us punters. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, which is, of course, pride and prejudice. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. Very good. It's an excellent book. And here's an easy one, in the beginning. See, there you go. If you said the Bible, I was going to say, no, Genesis. And if you said the Genesis, I was going to say the Bible. But anyway, see, a a punchy opening line is really important, isn't it, to grab your attention for a book. That's why these famous opening lines are so famous, for these famous books. And preachers very often do the same sorts of things to get people's attention right at the start. They might start with some kind of gimmick, like a funny story, or an illustration, or a quiz. Which makes you wonder what on earth Matthew was thinking when he started his book, when he tried to grab your attention about the story he was going to tell you. It's a bit slow, isn't it? All of those names. I mean, if I were introducing you to someone at a party, and I wanted them to be interested in you, would I start with this? No, I suspect I'd start with some of your more extraordinary exploits—your penchant for underwater rock climbing, or your basket-weaving enterprise, or your newest bestseller. I wouldn't be introducing and saying, "Hi, this is Dave. I've just done some looking on ancestry.com. Here's a here's a printout." That's not how I'd start it. Why does he do it this way? Why does he introduce us to this person, Jesus, like this? It's a bit slow but I want to tell you that it makes perfect sense if you change the scenario just slightly. Because just imagine that the interesting fact that I told my friend about you wasn't that you liked rock climbing, but was that you were their king. And not only that you were their king, but you were their king in a nation whose royal family had died out centuries ago but whose holiest book had foretold that one day the monarchy would be revived and their greatest ever king would one day return. And this friend of mine whom I was introducing you to was that person. Well, you might be a little bit more interested in my friend then, wouldn't you? And I think then you might be a bit more interested in where he came from, who his family was, what his bona fides were, whether he really was a king. Well, that's exactly what Matthew does here, isn't it? In his context, he's writing to first century Jews in Roman-occupied Israel. And they haven't had a king of their own since Israel was captured and sent into exile by Babylon in 586 BC, about, you know, 586 years before now, before this passage here. But their scriptures, just like in our illustration, had predicted that one day a king would return, a great king who would restore their fortunes. And now Matthew tells them exactly this has happened. And so he rolls out the Ancestry.com printout. Your king has returned. You can see it in the very first sentence. Look at verse 1 there with me. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see that word Christ, which has religious overtones for us now, simply means king. Christ equals king, and not just any king by the looks of it here. This is the king who's descended from the genuine royal family of Israel. You see, he he is the son of David. Israel had had lots of kings, lots of rulers, many of whom had taken power unlawfully by coups or by overthrow. But if you're a son of David, then you're a legitimate part of the royal family. You're the real McCoy. And that's what matthew is saying here about jesus but he's not just of the royal line of david no he's he actually goes even further back than that he's the son of abraham you see if david had been israel's thousand year old king at this point in time abraham was the father of the nation 1700 years before a man who had had god promised to him that through his descendants Not only the little nation of Israel, but the whole world would be blessed through this king. That's a pretty big claim for Matthew to be making, really, isn't it? Given that they haven't had a king at all since the exile in Babylon. And yet, that's just exactly the point this family tree makes, isn't it? You can see it there in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from david to the exile in babylon and 14 from the exile to the christ the king has returned and so let me get to this bit where the long foretold liberator of israel returns we expect a bit of fanfare don't we i expect movie panoramas a blast of trumpets The glint of sunlight on a king's crown as he sits on his steed in the distance just before he sounds the horn, and thousands upon thousands of his victorious troops swarm over the walls of Jerusalem, rout the Roman occupiers and begin the first victory of many that will finally liberate their nation as God's king has been promised. That's what I expect. What do we get? A teen pregnancy and a shotgun wedding. Look at verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ, the King, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. We don't know much about these characters, they've only just been introduced to us in the story. We know that Joseph was a carpenter, which was an honest enough job at the time, but pretty menial. If we know anything about the culture of the time, we know that Mary was probably poor, and probably about 15 years of age. They're not particularly impressive people. But for all that, they're people and they're engaged. It's a happy time. Until Mary drops the bombshell. She's pregnant. This is a disaster. Some of you may have had an unplanned pregnancy, I don't know. And some of you may have had to break that to your husband. Maybe you can imagine what that felt like. Maybe you've had an unplanned pregnancy and you weren't married. There was a degree of real uncertainty about what the future was going to hold. Certainly back then, this was going to be an absolute disgrace. But it's even worse than that here. Because Mary is breaking the news that she's pregnant to the man she's going to get married to, who she knows isn't the father. Not Joseph's kid. The 18th century French author and cynic, if this quote's anything to go by, the Marquis de Sade said, gave this advice to people, do not breed, nothing gives less pleasure than childbearing, pregnancies are damaging to health, spoil the figure, wither the charms and it's the cloud of uncertainty forever hanging over those events that darkens a husband's mood. Well... He may well be a touch on the cynical side but you can imagine how joseph might sympathize with him at this point mary has obviously had an affair but joseph we're told is a righteous man he's a good man and he decides to do things properly he's going to divorce her but he'll do it quietly rather than publicly it seems like the story already off to a pretty shaky start is going to come to an abrupt and premature finish but this is where the passage then puts a twist on things which changes the whole story, because Joseph is wrong. Mary didn't cheat on him. She hasn't had an affair. She's actually a virgin. See, look with me at, at verse 18 again. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly does that mean? It's certainly been the kind of claim that Christians have been mocked for 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 quite some time. I want to be very clear, it doesn't mean sex. Mary didn't have sex with God. I think Luke, in his account, his biography gives a much better idea. When the angel Gabriel comes to tell Mary that she'll have a son, he says this, How should this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm still a virgin, the angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It's not sex. But in a deeply mysterious way, Mary became pregnant with a child as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. We can see why Mary might have decided not to tell Joseph this. It might have seemed a little far-fetched. It's obvious enough to us, because we've got the benefit of reading Matthew's Gospel. Joseph didn't. And so, to stop things going terribly pear-shaped, an angel tells him. Look at verse 20. But after he'd considered this, divorcing her, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And it's not just a random sort of medical freak show that's being portrayed here a headline for the National inquiry. Inquirer. That's not the kind of picture that Matthew is portraying here. No, this was foretold in an Old Testament prophecy, in Isaiah 700 years before. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And so Joseph does what he's told. And they go ahead and marry and to clear up any doubt, any doubt, about who this little boy is, Matthew lets us take a very intimate, private peek into their bedroom. You can see it there in verse forty-five, verse 25. But he, Joseph, had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. It's not Joseph's child. But it's not someone else's. In some mysterious way, this is God's child. But what exactly does that mean? Does it just mean that this child is from God in that he's specially favoured? Well, no. The more staggering claim gets made still. That this child is not just a favoured child by God. This child is God. So you can see it there in verse 23. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which, when you think about it, is actually a pretty staggering insight. This is not just another king in some tin pot Near Eastern dynasty. This is not just another so-called miraculous birth which ends up petering out. No, no, Matthew is claiming here, and we are asked to assess, that the historical figure we call Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, is God. It is God entering His world. I don't know if you're a a fan of Hitchcock films, Uh, I quite like them, but one of the little kind of things that Hitchcock used to do, he was the director of countless mystery films, was that in every film, I don't know if you know this, he always had a walk-on part, he always had one part where he would, he never spoke, no I think he spoke once, he'd come on and then go. The director would write himself apart in his film. Well, that's kind of what's being spoken about here. Here is the director of the world, the author of life, writing himself into his own world. It must have been terrifying for Mary and Joseph to think that their son would be God. God in their house. God in their living room, God in their kitchen. But I wonder if it's maybe a little bit terrifying for us as well. Because if that's true, it's not just God turning up in Mary and Joseph's house. It's God turning up in our world. And more importantly, it's God turning up in His world. Uh, Genesis tells us that, uh, and the rest of the Bible testifies to it, that That this world is god's and yet we've been given it to to house it if you like we've been given it to look after as caretakers and yet one only needs to look at the news one only needs to look at one's own life to see that we haven't exactly been looking after the joint we only need to look at the the horrendous wars going on in africa we only need to look at the apathy of the world community 20 million displaced people in Pakistan. We only need to look at injustice and corruption in South America. We only need to look at the threat of terrorism constantly, daily in Iraq, to see there is something wrong with our world. And Australia's not much better really. Oh we're peaceful, we're well governed, but we're obsessed with money. We're obsessed with individualism. Our families break down around us. Sydney is a perfect example of this. Materialism, workaholism, depression. But when I'm finished pointing the finger at the world, uh, at Australia, at the country, at the city, I only have to look to myself to see where the real problem lies. I'm greedy, I'm selfish, I'm vain, I'm covetous, I'm sexually immoral, I'm rude, I'm proud. Yeah, I can point at the world and its faults and the way it has not taken care of the world God has taken care of, but I am a little world. I am a little world in my own little rebellion against God, aren't I as a human being? Isn't that what we've done? Isn't that what the Bible says? And Isn't that what the news says? Isn't that what the mirror says gk chesterton a 19th century writer once wrote into the newspaper in response to a question that it asked and said tell us what you think the greatest problem in the world is and he wrote back with two words i am how profound do i really want god to come into this world so good to read a passage like this at a time other than Christmas, isn't it? We're so obsessed with mangers and and cute presents and things, we don't see quite the gravity of it. God, in our world, in His world, it's like having the person your house sitting for come home unexpectedly while there's stuff everywhere. Do you think you could say to God, I've looked after myself. I've looked after the rest of this world as you would have me. I think the Bible would say, no. I couldn't say that in my own life. It's something we need to bear in mind. And yet, this is also profoundly good news. And it's good news for one verse, reason. Look at me at verse 21. This Jesus Christ, this Christ, this King who's returned to His world. Verse 21, She will give birth to a son, and you ought to give him the name Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. So that actually makes sense, because in Hebrew, the word uh, Joshua, which is in Greek is Jesus, means the Lord saves. In fact, if ever you want to know what the Christian message is about, you only need to know the name Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Lord, saves. Christ, the Lord, rules. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And you see here that Jesus has come to save his world. He hasn't just come as a grumpy homeowner looking at mess, picking up at the spots of dust. Yeah, he's rightly angry with us. We've made a muck of it. But do you see his response here? He hasn't come to judge us. He's come to save us. And he's come to save us from the very thing which would put us in his wrath, sins. See, maybe we get some idea of why he makes such an undramatic entry into the world. Because he hasn't come to save Israel from Rome. He hasn't come riding in on a charger. He hasn't come to change the political world order. He's come to save men and women from their sin. And he's come to save us. If we think of the arrival of God on earth as awe-inspiring, then the manner in which He does it is even more so. Think about it. He doesn't come in thunder and lightning, but as a baby, born in a shed, sleeping in a trough. Not with trumpets and a million angels, but the squalor of scandal and whispered gossip. He took on human nature with all of its problems, all of its sadness, all of its temptation, The Lord of the universe made himself subject to it. He who wrote the laws of physics was bound by them. He who lit the sun like a lamp could now be burnt by it. He who erected the hoops of gravity could now be pinned to the ground by them. He who poured out the sea could now drown in it. He was nailed to a cross, made from wood that he grew. With iron he forged, cursed by people he made, and for whom he died. Yet the king has returned, but in the most unimaginable way. That's what makes Christianity good news. It is unlike any other news, any other religion you will hear about. Because here is God... Who has shown that as far as the human race is concerned, he is in it for the long haul. He is not some aloof, unknowable Allah. He is not a serene and attached Buddha. He is not the God who stays in unapproachable holiness, like the Yahweh of the modern Jews, who cannot even bring themselves to say his name. No, this is a God becomes a baby and who subjects himself to all of the sufferings, all of the problems of this life. God himself made himself subject to imperfect parents, puberty, the nerves of a first day at school, stress at work, friends who failed him, the pressure of expectation, betrayal, physical suffering none of us will ever encounter. Isn't it easier in real life to obey someone who you know knows how you feel? Is there nothing worse than coming to someone with a problem and pouring your heart out to have them only give you advice from their ivory tower when it's patently obvious they have no idea how you feel? They've never suffered that problem, or at least they can't bring themselves to admit it. That is so 100% the opposite of Jesus. Because the God who died and suffered for us is the God who suffered with us. You cannot come to Jesus with a suffering, with a pain, with a doubt, with a sadness, with a fear that he hasn't felt first. How good to know. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if Jesus for you looks like that or if Jesus for you is like stained glass, two-dimensional, radiant, but totally inhuman. I don't know if you're weighed down with guilt about the mistakes you've made. I don't know if you think that God just could not possibly understand the mess you've made of things or the sorrow that you feel from a a thousand incidents in your life. But if this is anything to go by, and it is, you just don't have that God. That God just doesn't exist. The God who exists is Jesus Christ. If you want someone who really knows how you feel, really knows how hard life, He's the man to come to. He is your judge. He is the Christ. He takes your behavior dead seriously. But he knows what it was to suffer. He knows about life. Better even than us. And he came here not against you, but for you. And not just for you, but with you. Let me close with words from Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Father, we're just so grateful to know that you know exactly how we feel. You can't stand our sin, and there are times when you can't stand us, and who can blame you? We have just made a mess of things as a race, and as people. And yet Matthew 1 reminds us, when you came into this world, you didn't come on a charger. You didn't come to ruin us. You came to save us. You came here for the long haul, to know what it's like to be a human and to die for us. Father, please help banish from our minds any conception of you, that is anything but a loving father and a loyal brother. Amen.